0: Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here today. So apparently, someone hacked the hub this week. It's our community um, uh, database that we get to share pictures and, and information with each other. They didn't get any sensitive information, but they did hack the hub and send you all emails purportedly from me asking for money. Google Play cards, whatever those are, listen, to be clear, if you ever get an email from me and I'm asking for anything besides your date of birth, social security number, and mother's maiden name, (laughs) it is not me. Seriously, I'm so sorry that happened, the perils of living in a digital age. Several years ago, I was taken in here at Alliance. Someone called the church, asked for me, and said they were the Thompsons, an African-American family who had just started coming to the church. I would not met them. They were make-believe. They were driving uh, through a town in West Virginia when their car broke down. And, Pastor, this community is not friendly to African-Americans. We are scared. Can you send some money? We don't have any right, right away for the car repair. I did, $300, <laughs> much to my embarrassment. And, and yet... God knows my heart, knows that I abhor racism, and and, and love the people of his church. Scammed? (laughs) Sure. Naive? Probably. Proving my love for Christ and his people regardless of race? I hope so. I suppose uh, that would be considered a first world problem. I'm not confident it would be classified as persecution. And yet. We do live in a broken world, don't we? I mean, who would break into a church database, pretend to be a pastor, and try to scam the people of the church? Can you imagine standing before God for that one? (laughs) Listen, when you robbed the 7-Eleven, that was one thing. But the church, we have a special place reserved for you. It got me thinking, perhaps it is a way for the evil one to attack the church, to discourage, um, to get you to wonder. I'm aware of at least one person trying to do good, sent money this week, you know, to help someone in need, taken in love for people. So does this mean that we become more wary, more more careful? Perhaps less sacrificial, less giving. I hope not. I mean, this person or persons targeted the church of Jesus Christ because they know Christians are, are, are giving people. So in that sense, it would be taking advantage of us because we are Christians. Gullible, naive, easily manipulated? Not necessarily, But we are followers of Christ, who himself gave everything for love for his people. I do not think I'm stretching things here. If the evil one can take our money, it is a small, albeit meaningless, victory. We are in the book of Hebrews. And the author is writing to a group of largely Jewish believers in Jesus who were facing opposition, persecution because of their faith. Got me to thinking, what form does such opposition take today, especially in our culture? I would suggest to you that it is any form of loss or suffering because we are followers of Jesus. In 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 what other ways is the evil one or his evil followers attacking you, such that you wonder? You begin to wonder, God, where are you? You begin to wonder, well, is this Christian life worth it? I want you to think about that one for just a minute. I've become a follower of Jesus, and my fight—they promised me something else, and my finances, my relationships, my personal health—it's still a mess. And so, maybe, just suggesting, that Christianity does not mean that we'll live a trial-free life. What is it for you? Maybe it's ridicule. Maybe loss of respect. Overlooked for a job or a promotion because of your faith. Mistreated because you wrote a paper with Christian ideals and the professor didn't like it. Dismissed because of your integrity. Someone left you because you follow Jesus. You see, there are all kinds of ways that the evil one attacks. Say, see, I'm not really sure that those are... Consider Job, shall we? He lost his fortune because of his righteousness in an attack of the evil one. Would you think about that? He lost his wealth, his animals, all of his assets because he was righteous, not because he was unrighteous. He lost his family. This one is a bit hard to wrap our minds around. He lost all of his children, grandchildren. Can you imagine? Because of his faithfulness, he lost his health, he lost the respect of his wife. Were it not for the book of Job, we, like his friends, may think it's God's punishment because of some dark, hidden sin, but it wasn't. And yet, it was allowed by God, all of it. All of it. Why? Does God not care? Is he asleep? Is he too busy running the universe? Quite the opposite, you see. I want you to understand that there are three ways that we typically view trials, even in the form of opposition because of our faith, persecution, three ways that we typically think of that that need to change. First, we have a tendency to think that God does not care, or maybe he does not know. The opposite is actually true. He does care, and so trials come as a result of his care. What? Hold on. Second, we think that trials come perhaps because we've done something wrong. We're we're being punished, and that may be true, right? First Corinthians eleven. Some of you are sick. Some of you are even have even died because of uh, uh, your neglect of personal holiness because you have not examined yourself in preparation for the table, and you take uh, the table of the Lord and you take it lightly. It might be, but it may not be. You see, sometimes the question, Lord, why are you doing this to me, might be the right question, if asked rightly. Is it possible God allows trials for other purposes besides punishment? Third, we might think that God is not in control. (laughs) Well, we may not say it quite like that, but we say it like this. This is an evil attack, and... Well, God is helpless to do anything about it. Oh, we don't say it that way either? So, if God cares, and God knows, and God is in control, we call that sovereign. And, and let me just throw in an extra one. If God is good, is it possible He has something else in mind for our trials? If God, our Father is good and holy and sovereign, and something bad happens to me, something bad happens to you, maybe right now, maybe this week, is God still good and holy and sovereign? Or must we think Him untrustworthy? God, where are you? Don't you care? Can God... Still be trusted in the midst of trials and loss and pain, even silly ones like three hundred dollars trying to care, even bigger ones like suffering or loss or even death. Look at the text with me today. It's found in Hebrews four. I think you'll uh, excuse me. Hebrews twelve verses four and following. I think that you will find it familiar. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And besides that, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the the discipline of the Lord. What? Nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges. The word means whips. He whips every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. It could be trusted endure for the sake of discipline. It could be a command. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much... Uh, Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share uh, His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit Righteousness. Now, many of us n- n- are familiar with this passage. We've used it in our conversations with other people. Well, you're probably s- s- struggling right now because of sin in your life. Maybe. We've quoted it for years. God brings discipline in our lives to teach us, to train us, to mature us. It's proof that we are His children. God disciplines those He loves. Those who are not His children, He doesn't discipline them. So discipline is proof that we belong to God, right? We say that so glibly. It's true. But now, you see, we are forced to look at this passage in its context, the, the, the book is written to Jewish believers who were facing what? Severe persecution, opposition. The author has encouraged them with a the great hall of faith. Look to them. They, they too faced opposition. Some even martyred them. <laughs> so be encouraged. Yay! Hey. Run with endurance, the race set before you. Lay aside every encumbrance, anything that would distract you in the race. Lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us, impedes our progress. Run with endurance. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Don't miss the next point. It sets the context. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, the most painful and shameful of deaths, Endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself; that they opposed him to death. Now we understand that his Jesus opposition to death, and well, that had a purpose, namely our redemption. So we're okay with that, right? That's good. As you run your race with endurance, fix your eyes on Jesus, who endured to death. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When? Context. When you face such hostility from sinners. That, brothers and sisters, is the context. God had a purpose in the suffering of his son. It was for your salvation and it was for his glory. Yay! Is it possible that he has a purpose for your suffering as well? Not not that he doesn't care, quite the opposite. Not necessarily that you're in sin. Not necessarily that he's not in control. Can I tell you that he is in control and he is altogether good? The author seeks to encourage us today with the truth that persecution, opposition, trials, attacks of the evil one, pain, sorrow, suffering, loss, God allows, for the purpose of our discipline, our teaching, our training, for our good, so that we may share in His holiness, and and produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Are you kidding me? That's the context. Look at the outline. See the current extent of. Their sufferings and discipline, the, the biblical basis for suffering, discipline, the earthly example, we all had them, b- b- likely, fathers, earthly fathers, suffering and discipline, and the purpose. You mean, yes. The purpose of your suffering. And please notice that I quite intentionally put suffering and discipline together as if interchangeable. That is my argument, and I believe the author's point. Our suffering is not because God does not care. It it, it may not be because of sin. And it is not because God is out of control or lacks control. The truth is God disciplines us sometimes with suffering because he cares more. He loves us. Not because of sin, but to mature us. He allows it precisely because He is in control and it is for our good and for His glory. This is hard. Looking at verses in their context, it's a lot easier to wrench them out of their context. Verse 4 to see the current extent of their suffering. He's just said at the end of chapter 11 many were tortured. We looked at that word. That meant tied to a rack and beaten to death. Some were stoned, some were sawn in two, others were put to death with the sword. Now, since you're surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses, martyrios, the word came to be martyrs. Since we're surrounded with such a great cloud of martyrs, let us run with our races with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He suffered to the point of death. Paul says even death on a cross. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You, you see... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. This is what he's just been talking about. Even Jesus. Notice he says the word yet. You've not yet. You could have left that word out all day long. That's why I've suggested martyrdom seems to be right around the corner. They have faced persecution from Jewish authorities, Roman authorities. Now it seems they might face martyrdom, death just like Jesus, just like those at the end of Hebrews 11. And they did, by the way, for centuries now. So consider him so that you will not give up. It says, you have not yet faced death, blood, in your striving against sin. Whose sin... And, and this is where if we take it out of his context, we think, well, see, you're in sin, so that's why he's disciplined. Maybe, maybe not. Putting, with it, putting it with the previous verse, it speaks of Jesus facing the hostility of sinners. Most agree, the sin here is those opposing us. They're the sinners who are opposing us because of our faith. They are attacking us, as I've suggested, in many different ways, being used by the evil one to bring suffering and pain and, and loss. What are you facing right now? Further point to you, you've you've forgotten something very important. You've forgotten the exhortation. Interesting word. It's the word paraklesis. Same word that Jesus used of the Holy Spirit in the farewell discourse. There we remember it's, if you've looked at different translations, it's translated in a lot of different ways. It speaks of exhortation, encouragement, help, comfort. You've forgotten a passage of Scripture that addresses you as sons and daughters, by the way, that should be encouraging, comforting, helping you. It's found in Proverbs chapter 3, and he quotes it right here in the midst of suffering for the cause of Christ. You've forgotten this very encouraging scripture. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Wait a minute, discipline of the Lord? I thought we were talking about suffering for our faith. He just mentioned Jesus facing the cross. You're trying to tell me that was from the Lord? I mean, it was the Jews who handed him over. It was the Romans who, who drove the nails. Who killed Jesus? Who indeed? Because Isaiah 53 says that it was God's will to crush him. God killed Jesus, ultimately. For our benefit, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord, has this is all, he's going, the Lord's doing all of this. The, the, the Lord, the ones the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges, he whips every son he receives. Is the author actually suggesting the trials of persecution and opposition are actually ultimately coming from the hand of the Lord? It sure seems like it. And is he actually saying that discipline is not because of indifference that he doesn't care, but because he loves us? Really? If this is true, why does God discipline his children? Why does he reprove us? Well, point three. First, the author argues from the lesser to the greater. It is for discipline that you endure. The word discipline has the word child in it and it speaks of rearing or training or disciplining a child. It is for training, it is for being raised up, it is being matured, for being matured that you endure discipline from your heavenly Father. You see, in doing so, God deals with you as sons and daughters. The author asked an interesting question. What son is there whom the father does not discipline? That question loses a little punch in our culture. Remember, it was King Edward VIII who visited the U.S. And after being here, said, What is striking is the way that parents obey their children in America. We somehow come to think that if we love our children, we won't discipline them so that they can grow up to become unruly, undisciplined, self-focused adults. Discipline is the result of love. It is for their good. What child is not disciplined by an earthly father, at least one who loves him or her? You need to understand, at this particular time, the authority of the father was ultimate. Way it should be, And, and and it was his responsibility to discipline, train, mature his children. In fact, verse eight says, "If you are not disciplined, then you are actually illegitimate children." The old version said that you were a B word. You you see, there were at this time legitimate children of the father's marriage to his wife, and then there were illegitimate children as a result of affairs and the like, other things, quite nasty, We won't talk about it. These children were not heirs, and the biological father had no training responsibilities. And this proved that you were illegitimate, unloved, uncared for. Again, ding, 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 are we thinking of our culture? Yes, this is a sad commentary, but the author is using a cultural norm to make a point. If you are disciplined, you are a loved heir. If not, you aren't. That's the point. Notice verse 9. We had earthly fathers discipline. This was a primary responsibility. Beginning of verse 10 says, they trained us for a short time, that is, while we were children. It's not very long. It may have seemed long at the time, but in the grand scheme of our lives, it was for a short time. So also in the grand scheme of eternity, from lesser to greater, in the grand scheme of eternity, our um, just as our earthly fathers disciplined us, are disciplined by our Heavenly Father, in the grand scheme of eternity, drop in the bucket. Earthly Father's responsibility to prepare us for adulthood. And notice he says, they did so as seemed best to them. That's an interesting phrase. It does leave open the possibility more the likelihood, the truth that their discipline wasn't always best. Can anybody say amen? But they did, it seemed best. I remember a couple stories. I remember one time my father and I were goofing around. I was 14, I remember, because I remember where we were at the time. He was chasing me, and I was able to get out uh, to our car parked out front. You know how that is. Even if you are slower, you can keep away from someone who's faster if you can get to a car. <laughs> and so he chased me around for a little while, and then he stopped, and he picked up a rock. I mean, I think it was part of the curb. I mean, I think it was like this big. He said, you better stop or I'm going to throw this at you. I didn't know what to do. He didn't lie. So I stopped. He tackled me. We wrestled around a bit and I asked him, would you have really thrown that boulder at me? And he said, "Um, that's what I said. Dude, I mean, dad, are you kidding me? And then I remembered the second story. My father, uh, I mean, his father, my grandfather I I heard the stories about how he disciplined my dad. When dad got in trouble, he made him go outside. He was raised in Gastonia. Some people came up to me afterwards and said, I was raised in Gastonia, and I remember this. Uh, When he got in trouble, go outside and get a hickory switch. Then he would beat him with it on the back, sometimes drawing blood. Not recommending that. I just remembered the story in fact, he'd tell me one time he got out of a whipping. Grandpa told him to go get a switch, and he apparently brought in a little twig. Grandpa said, go get a switch or it's going to be worse. It made Dad mad, so he went out and picked out a small tree, he pulled it up by the roots, drug it in, roots and dirt and all. Grandpa started laughing. Dad got out of the whipping. They did as they thought best, even though sometimes it was not good. But the purpose was discipline, child training, maturing. And as a result, we respected them for it, largely, verse 9 says. Maybe not at the time, but eventually. You see, they took us whining, sniveling little children and grew us up, presumably, to be productive members of society. Here's again is a lesser to greater argument. Shall we not much more be subject to and notice he goes from respect to be subject to the father of spirits. You see our earthly fathers disciplined us physically but he's the father of our the heavenly fathers father of our spirits. Should you not be subject to him and live This speaks not only of our life now but of our eternity. Our life now as I said is just a drop in the bucket. Be subject to Him and live here, yes, now, and for eternity. It's worth it as you ask yourself that question. So how is all of this good? Last point, verses 10 and 11. While our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to grow us to adulthood, which was a longer time our heavenly father disciplines us for a good for a much longer time our earthly fathers as seem best our heavenly father as is best perfectly you do understand he has never done anything that was not for your good did you know the oft quoted romans 8:28 that we throw around Wrenching it right out of its context is in the context of suffering. Did you know that? Look at it with me. Romans chapter 8. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Yay. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Say it with me. Yay. If indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. What? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For even creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from what? From slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you understand what that is saying? That even in the curse, even all of creation was subjected to our sin and they are waiting for the sons of God, sons and daughters of God to be revealed and, glo- and, and, and creation will be gloriously restored. They are longing for that. For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Have you ever done that? Maybe this week. Have you ever groaned? thinking, how long, oh Lord? How long can I, I do this? When are you gonna come back and make all things right, waiting eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body? Because you see, we live in a broken world, in broken bodies, and things do not work right. And he goes on in that text to talk about the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us and in our suffering and our praying. And then he gets to that very familiar 828, and we know that God causes all things what things? Sufferings. To work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Meaning, uh, God, our Father, even works our sufferings, our trials, our challenges, even persecutions and oppositions for our good, for our training, uh, discipline to grow us up. How was that good? The end of verse 10 and 11. First verse 10, he disciplines us for, us for our good so that, here's the purpose, here's the purpose of his discipline, so that we may share in his holiness. God's purpose in training us is that we might become more holy. After all, both the Old and the New Testaments say, be holy even as God is holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart to, to righteousness. It means, it's, it means to be good. Why is God? Di- he wants you to be holy, to set aside every encumbrance and the sin that's entangling you. Verse 11 says, All discipline for the moment seems to be not joyful, but sorrowful. That was true with a, as earthly children. No one really enjoyed the spankings, the time out, the discipline. Do your homework, eat your peas, make your bed, do your chores. But eventually we became thankful for it because having been trained by it, we grew up. Further, God's discipline in the context, sufferings, opposition, even persecution, attacks of the evil one, pain, loss, sorrow. Those who have been trained by it God's gracious hand of discipline in our lives. Afterward, it yields fruit. What fruit? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. God is training us. People, brothers and sisters, listen. God is training you to be holy and righteous. You show me someone who has had a silver spoon in their mouths their entire lives. No challenges, no discipline. And I will show you someone who's very difficult to be around. Conversely, show me someone who has faced suffering and trials and grown by them, and I'll show you someone who is humble and who can encourage, empathize, and care for us when we face the same. He's maturing you. He's making you like Him, growing us up, making us like Jesus. So, I close with this. There are three ways... There are several ways that you can face suffering. First, you can put on a stoic face and just endure it. Don't like it, but it is what it is. I'll just grin and bear it. One author says this is a way to disdain it. God, I don't like it. As you shake your fist in the face of God, it's not the best way. You will not grow that way. Second, you can be dismayed by it. You can allow it to depress you, discourage you, to defeat you, to anger you. You can blame it solely on the evil one, as if God has forgotten. You can decide if you want to that you can no longer trust God. After all, why, if he loves me, would he allow my suffering more than that? Why does he actually even bring suffering? You can quit and decide Christianity isn't worth it. It's what these people were thinking about doing. You can be dismayed by it. Or you can be encouraged (laughs) by the trials of suffering. How? Knowing that God allows them not because he cannot be trusted, quite the opposite. He is working in your life for your good to make you more like him, to help you grow in holiness. And then, and only then, can you face such trials, whatever it is that you're facing today, you can face such trials with joy. And all of a sudden, James, it's like these guys read each other. It's like James' words begin to make sense. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then what? Is that what the author is encouraging us to do? That's what trials are for. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect, mature, complete, lacking nothing. That's what God is doing. Is it possible that whatever it is that you are going through right now is eternally for your good? I know it doesn't feel like it. What, what do you say? It, it, for the moment, it seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. I want to say to you that God is growing you up, maturing you, to live rightly now and in the life to come. And so I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, to endure. Let's do it together, and we will together be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ.